Hello everybody and welcome back to Freud in Focus, a podcast from the Freud Museum London with Tom DeRose and me, Jamie Brewers. In this series we're looking at the uncanny, and in today's episode we will be investigating the third and final part of the paper. So you might remember that last week we were looking at part two, where Freud began to explore examples of the uncanny in folk tales, namely the stories of the German novelist E.T.A. Hoffmann, with a particular focus on his story, The Sandman. Freud references the paper On the Psychology of the Uncanny by his colleague Ernst Jentsch, which Freud then challenges. While Jentsch argues that the uncanny aspect of the Sandman is the automaton doll creature named Olympia, Freud's counter-argument is that the uncanny aspect of the story is not Olympia, but the Sandman himself, an evil being who comes and removes children's eyes, which Freud likens to Oedipus and the castration complex. After collecting examples of the uncanny in part two, Freud introduces the element of doubt, but he does it in a particular way. I'll just read the first sentence of part three. It is in the course of this discussion the reader will have felt certain doubts arising in his mind, and he must now have an opportunity of collecting them and bringing them forward. This seems very deliberate. You know, what is Freud getting at here, and what what's this doubt that he's talking about? Well, this is is really quite a familiar line of argument in Freud's works. You know, so he anticipates the doubt of the reader, and attempts to incorporate those doubts into a more nuanced and a, a kind of higher theoretical position. It's really the the practice of dialectic, which goes back to the Socratic dialogues of Plato. Freud adopts this technique of reasoning throughout his work, actually. I mean, we might think of the question of lay analysis, you know, where the doubting or dissenting voice is actually dramatised under the name of the impartial person whom Freud has an imaginary dialogue with in, in a kind of uncanny replica of, of a Socratic dialogue. Now, in a less dramatic manner, we might think of the two textual voices that inhabit the future of an illusion. So it's a mode of reasoning that, that Freud often resorts to. And it has a particular effect on the reader, I think. It's almost as if, in anticipating and vocalising doubt, in expressing the antithesis of the thesis of his argument, doubt itself is swept up in the dialectical resolution of the argument. If Freud has recognised the dissenting voice, and if he will then deal with these concerns, what is there left to doubt? You know, it, it kind of must be true. But of course, it's Freud himself who is giving voice to these doubts, and not the reader who's invoked in the first sentence of part three. So what this dissenting voice has recognised in Freud's definition of the uncanny is that whilst it may appear true that the experience of the uncanny is brought about by the appearance or the recurrence 
of something that had previously undergone repression. The proposition is not convertible. So not everything that recalls repressed desires or surmounted modes of thought is on that account uncanny. And the examples that Freud produces in order to contradict his proposition are taken from the field of fiction, and more specifically from fairy tales. So this story of the free, the three wishes, for example, in which uh, the woman wishes that she might have sausages to eat, and then they appear on her plate. And then her husband wishes that the sausages might hang from her nose, and then they appear dangling from her nose. You know, Freud describes this story, you know, as an example of the return of a stage of the omnipotence of thought. He, he describes it as funny, but in no way uncanny. So neither are the stories of, of Hans Christian Andersen or the coming to life of the statue in the story Pygmalion. Indeed, Freud goes on to suggest that he cannot find any genuine fairy story that can rightly be called uncanny. This dissenting voice will, of course, be incorporated by Freud into his argument and will help to give it subtlety and nuance. Well, as you said, nearly all the instances that contradict the definition are taken from fiction. This seems like a pretty odd thing to say after so much of Freud's argument had been based around fiction. But it leads Freud to distinguish between the uncanny that we experience in real life and the uncanny that we read about or that we see at the theatre and so on. And we should be able to differentiate between these two experiences. But first of all, he discusses the uncanny based on real experience. Absolutely. Um, so here Freud introduces the first differentiation, doesn't he, between the real and the represented, as it were. But when he begins to discuss the uncanny that is actually experienced, he introduces another di uh, differentiation between that which is uncanny because it recalls a stage that should have been surmounted and that which is uncanny because it relates to infantile complexes. So where we had doubles in part two, now we have divisions. The first, he will discuss the uncanny as it is experienced in real life, which relates to a stage that should have been surmounted. Speaking of doubles, uh, we then come across this wonderful footnote of Freud's, um, which I'd like to read to you, if I may. And this is from the Standard Edition, uh, volume 17, page 248. So Freud writes, Since the uncanny effect of a double also belongs to this same group, it is interesting to observe what the effect is of meeting one's own image unbidden and unexpected. Ernst Mach has related two such observations in his Analyse der Empfindungen from 1900. On the first occasion, he was not a little startled when he realised that the face before him was his own. The second time he formed a very unfavourable opinion about the supposed stranger who entered the omnibus and thought, what a shabby looking schoolmaster that man is who is getting in. I can report a similar adventure. 
I was sitting alone in my wagon lee compartment when a more than usually violent jolt of the train swung back the door of the adjoining washing cabinet and an elderly gentleman in a dressing gown and a travelling cap came in. I assumed that in leaving the washing cabinet, which lay between the two compartments, he'd taken the wrong direction and come into my compartment by mistake. Jumping up with the intention of putting him right, I at once realised, to my dismay, that the intruder was nothing but my own reflection in the looking-glass on the open door. I can still recollect that I thoroughly disliked his appearance. Instead, therefore, being frightened by our doubles, both Mac and I simply failed to recognise them as such. Is it not possible, though, that our dislike of them was a vestigial trace of the archaic reaction which feels the double to be something uncanny. I, I don't know about you, Jamie, but I, I love these passages in which Freud kind of enters the stage. Yeah, you know, structurally, of course, this, this footnote relates to the scene in part two, where he describes kind of wandering around the provincial town in Italy one afternoon and, and getting lost, you know, this example, of course, doesn't make it to the main body of the text, but it does have a similar quality and feel to it, I think. The language is really quite haunting. You know, Freud comes across his mirror image as an elderly gentleman in a dressing gown and travelling cap. You know, and, and this encounter, it kind of brings him face to face with the reality of ageing, you know, perhaps of the approach of death. In the same way that the experience of getting lost in the middle of the afternoon in that provincial town in Italy had led him inadvertently to the scene of sexuality. Eros in the death drive, perhaps. And there's that confessional tone again, isn't there, which reminds us of the very particular mode of inquiry that makes psychoanalysis so compelling. So Freud, the man of science, whose life is thus structured by the notion of reality testing, is himself affected by the vestigial trace of the archaic reaction which feels the double to be something uncanny. So Freud's attempts to define, to divide and distinguish are in a way haunted by this double which has returned from part two. We might also see certain intimations of Beyond the Pleasure Principle here, the text that in many ways acts as the double of the one that we're currently reading. But coming back to Freud's main argument, it appears that the uncanny effect that arises in an encounter with reality is much more likely to be caused by the return of the familiar, the reminder of a stage which should have been surmounted. When it comes to the uncanny feeling which is related to repressed infantile wishes, Freud argues that these instances have a relation not to material reality, but to psychical reality. So the first deals with that which has been surmounted, whilst the second deals with that which has been repressed. Right, so the uncanny in literature warrants its own discussion. So he begins to summarise the uncanny in literature separately, initially stating that the uncanny instances in literature seem more 
evocative initially. He says, and this is on page 248, if you'd like to follow at home, he says, The uncanny, as it is depicted in literature, in stories and imaginative productions, merits, in truth, a separate discussion. Above all, it is a much more fertile province than the uncanny in real life, for it contains the whole of the latter, and something more besides, something that cannot be found in real life. The contrast between what has been repressed and what has been surmounted cannot be transposed onto the uncanny in fiction without profound modification. For the realm of fantasy depends for its effect on the fact that its content is not submitted to reality testing. The somewhat paradoxical result is that, in the first place, a great deal that is not uncanny in fiction would be so if it had happened in real life, and in the second place that there are many more means of creating uncanny effects in fiction than there are in real life. Well, that's, uh, you know, quite a paradox. How does Freud unpack this paradox, Tom? Well, I think the key for Freud here, you know, very much as in the case of the analysis of dreams and the appearance of symptoms, is that of conflict. In the case of the uncanny, it is a conflict of judgment. The conflict produced by the question of whether things which should have been surmounted and regarded as incredible may not, after all, be possible. This conflict of judgment, of course, does not, in fact, appear in fairy tales, because the animistic system of belief is, in Freud's words, frankly adopted. Fairy tales openly contain instances of wish fulfilment, secret powers, the omnipotence of thoughts, etc. So as a, as a reader, we're left with no doubt as to their veracity. You know, the rules of the, of the game are, are clearly laid out, aren't they? And there's no possibility of a conflict of judgment arising. So whereas the events that are described in many fairy tales would certainly be uncanny if they took place in reality, because they're fictionalised, because they're not subjected to reality testing, they don't produce the uncanny effect. Where this effect can come from is when an author kind of simulates reality, where these occurrences take place within a world which we take to be real, or indeed when we're unsure whether we're supposed to take it as real or not. An author who is able to sum up, uh, summon up sorry, such a world, who can create such an atmosphere, can then increase and multiply the effect to their heart's content. And as a reader, we, we give them our grudging admiration, don't we? So even though we feel a sense of betrayal at such an abuse of power, it's really the artist as Zalbera, as magician, you know, who, who pulls off his magic trick, which half charms us and half annoys us. Freud gives the example of a story by the writer and dramatist Arthur Schnitzler called The Prophecy as a particularly effective of this kind of uncanny effect. 
Schnitzler is a figure that Freud had a very interesting relationship with, actually, I mean, we might even call it ambivalent. And to illustrate this, I'd like to read a letter that um, Freud wrote to Schnitzler on the occasion of his 60th birthday. So uh, this letter is uh, to Arthur Schnitzler, um, dated May the 14th, 1922. Dear Dr Schnitzler, now you too have reached your 60th birthday, while I, six years older, am approaching the limit of life and may soon expect to see the end of the fifth act of this rather incomprehensible and not always amusing comedy. Had I retained a remnant of belief in the omnipotence of thoughts, I would not hesitate today to send you the warmest and heartiest good wishes for the years that await you. I shall leave this foolish gesture to the vast number of your contemporaries who will remember you on May the 15th. But I will make a confession, which for my sake I must ask you to keep to yourself and share with neither friends nor strangers. I have tormented myself with the question why in all these years I have never attempted to make your acquaintance and to have a talk with you. Ignoring the possibility, of course, that you might not have welcomed my overture. The answer contains the confession which strikes me as too intimate. I think I have avoided you from a kind of reluctance to meet my double. Not that I am easily inclined to identify myself with another, or that I mean to overlook the difference in talent that separates me from you. But whenever I get deeply absorbed in your beautiful creations, I invariably seem to find beneath their poetic structure the very presuppositions, interests and conclusions which I know to be my own. Your determinism, as well as your scepticism, what people call pessimism, your preoccupation with the truths of the unconscious and of the instinctual drives in man, your dissection of the cultural conventions of our society, the dwelling of your thoughts on the polarity of love and death, all this moves me with an uncanny feeling of familiarity. In a small book entitled Beyond the Pleasure Principle, published in 1920, I tried to reveal Eros and, death in and the death instinct as the motivating powers whose interplay dominates all the riddles of life. So I have formed the impression that you know through intuition, or rather from detailed self-observation, everything that I have discovered by laborious work on other people. Indeed, I believe that fundamentally your nature is that of an explorer of psychological depths, as honestly impartial and undaunted as anyone has ever been, and that if you had not been so constituted, your artistic abilities, your gift for language and your creative power would have had free reign and made you into a writer of greater appeal to the taste of the masses. I'm inclined to give preference to the explorer, but forgive me for drifting into psychoanalysis. I just can't help it. 
And I know that psychoanalysis is not the means of gaining popularity. With warmest greetings, your Freud. I mean, I think there's there's very little that I can add to that, really. I mean, sometimes it's just best to let Freud speak for himself. Such a lovely letter. Um, now, as we come to the end of the text, uh, Freud describes how he's drifted into the field of research of aesthetics half involuntarily through the temptation to explain certain instances which um, threaten to contradict his theory of the causes of the uncanny. So this leads to a final page in which he lists some of these exceptions from literature. Then he explains them away. You know, examples including things like severed limbs and ghosts. And the text finishes with this final paragraph and he states, Concerning the factors of silence, solitude, and darkness, we can only say that they are actually elements in the production of that infantile anxiety from which the majority of human beings have never become quite free. This problem has been discussed from a psychoanalytic point of view elsewhere. And that's just how it ends. What a cliffhanger! Such a weird ending for an essay, I think. Doesn't it feel half-finished? Well, yeah, it kind of does feel half-finished, doesn't it? Um, and it also, to me, it, it also feels quite circular in a way. You know, we've come back to aesthetics, you know, back to where we started in part one. You'll remember that Freud felt impelled to involve himself, he said, in the province of aesthetics at the outset of this essay, half involuntarily, as he now kind of says. So having steered his argument towards the terra firma of psychoanalysis, he's found himself drifting away again, you know, caught in the current that's dragging him towards the uncharted and imprecise province of aesthetics. And of course, there's that word temptation, isn't there? You know, the kind of siren song of complete understanding for the analyst as Odysseus. You'll remember in his letter, in the letter that I read earlier, he preferred to describe his double schnitzler as an explorer. In that letter, he also apologised for drifting, didn't he, into psychoanalysis. You know, how do we define and uphold the boundaries of a discipline of study? Freud then goes on to sweep aside the examples from fairy tales that seem to contradict his definition. And as for silence, solitude and darkness, as you said, Jamie, he states rather flippantly that these have been dealt with elsewhere. You know, in the three essays on sexuality, one of the foundational books of psychoanalysis. So psychoanalysis as a science wins out over the irrational and creative for forces of the writer of fiction. But it's a negotiated victory, never really completely won. And literature, as represented by Schnitzler, you know, remains in the shadows, ready and waiting to haunt the scientist Freud as he attempts to enjoy his Pyrrhic victory. The gods, then, of a superseded civilization, turn into demons. Well, I can't believe it. 
but that is the end of our close reading of the paper. Thank you so much, Tom. I've really enjoyed going through this essay with you. Um, and we have one final episode of this series on the uncanny, so next time we'll be looking at the influence that the paper had on art across all different types of media. So stick around for our final episode on Freud's 1919 paper, The Uncanny. And for now, I'd like to extend my thanks to my co-host, Tom DeRose, and our series producer, Carolina Heller. We'll see you next time.